2003, at the start of Jeopardy's 20th season, Alex Trebek announced a rule change that would permanently alter the DNA of America's favorite quiz show. One bit of important information for all of you who enjoy watching our program at home, and it has to do with how we treat our champions. In the past, whenever a champion, either he or she, won five games, that individual would leave the program, but that is no longer the case. Now they can win as many games as their talents will allow. That season saw a handful of contestants surpass the five-game marker. Sean Ryan made it to Game 7, Tom Walsh made it to Game 8, and of course, there was the GOAT himself, Ken Jennings, whose 74-game winning streak is still pretty hard to fathom. There have been plenty of impressive contestants in Jeopardy! history, but in the last few years, it seems we've seen more and more players that steal the stage for games and weeks on end. And our returning champion, a professional sports gambler from Las Vegas, Nevada, James Holzhauer, whose 32-day cash winnings total $2,462,216. Goodbye to Matt Amodio with an unbelievable 38-day winning streak. Jason Zafranari, whose 19-day cash winning... The impressive run of Jonathan Fisher. Can he make it 12 in a row? Our 23-year-old champion, Matteo Roach, is now a 23-day Jeopardy winner. A returning champion, Ryan Long, whose 16-day cash winnings, Chris Panulo, whose 21-day cash winnings... Total $748,286. From Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Ray Lalonde, whose 13-day cash winnings total... ...champion Amy Schneider has now been with us 40 days and 40 nights. She has amassed over $1.3 million and answered over 1,300 clues correctly. It's been a remarkable run, one for the books. And at this point, only one question remains. How long can it go on? We know their names, we've seen their stats, but now it's time to explore Jeopardy through their eyes. Who are these super champs? Who are some of the greats who have inspired them? And how might these longer winning streaks change the way the game is played today? I'm Buzzy Cohen, and from Sony Music Entertainment and Sony Pictures TV... This is Jeopardy, the story of America's favorite quiz show. Today, we're talking strategy and gameplay with some of the greatest Jeopardy players of all time. Factors ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. When my schedule gets busy, it's nice to have pre-prepared, chef-created, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to my door. With over 35 different options a week to choose from and over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, make your weekly meal planning even more delicious and easy with Factor. Plus, Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Head to factormeals.com slash Jeopardy50 and use code Jeopardy50 to get 50% off. That's code Jeopardy50 at factormeals.com slash Jeopardy50 to get 50% off. This might come as a surprise to you, 
But even the greats had first day jitters. The first game of Jeopardy I played, I was so nervous. Brad Rutter, who first appeared on Jeopardy in 2000, has returned for many tournaments. He also holds the title for the all-time money winner on Jeopardy. Almost $5 million. It didn't start well. I remember being below zero at the first commercial break. But then I got a hang of the buzzer. It is a very isolating experience because you are on the podium alone and you don't really get a whole lot of feedback on how it's going. That's Matt Amodio, who had a 38-game streak in 2021 and competed in the 2023 Masters Tournament where he made it to the finals, but hasn't forgotten that first game feeling. It is a scary experience. I felt like I was on a boat in the middle of the ocean alone, and it was a storm, and I had to figure out for myself where where to go and how to proceed. First centering activity, a warm-up playlist. I think it was actually that morning. I had made a playlist that was called Victory Morning. You know Amy Schneider, second highest streak for consecutive wins on the show with 40 games. She also competed in the 2023 Masters. Listening to the the M&M's Lose Yourself that morning where I was like, this is actually perfect. That this is exactly the message I want to be telling myself. That this is it. This, you get one shot. This is my one shot. You know, do not miss your chance. Lose yourself in the moment. Everything can wait for half an hour. Everything can wait. This is the only thing I need to focus on. And to this day, whenever I'm on the show, that is my mantra is stay focused. And sometimes that laser focus has to span an entire tape day. There are five games in a tape day, and you get there at 7.30 a.m., and for some of my games, I did not leave until after 7 p.m. And so I have to both be prepared to play a full 12 hours or be prepared for it to end at the next minute. The waiting, the whiplash, the back-to-back games, it's no wonder that some rely on strict routines to help them through. I would have a energy bar and an energy drink before every game. I guess caffeine takes maybe 15 minutes to to go through my system and start trigger. So I would have that energy drink about 15 minutes before taping the next game. Skinny Red Bulls, to be precise. Yeah, it was probably about five, like five cups of coffee worth throughout the day. I get the same snacks and drinks to have with me. Kumatea Roach, 23-game champ and runner-up in the 2023 Masters. I get my, like, little cans of cold brew coffee and my dried mango slices from Trader Joe's. And I know that, like, no matter what the food is on set that day, I'll have those things. And then there's the onstage creature comforts. The superstition was wearing the pearl necklace every time, which wasn't something that I planned on originally, but like suddenly in the moment realized, yes, I want this every game as something to like, you know, as as a, a kind of grounding thing to remind myself that I've got a great happy world back home. I did have lucky shoes that I wore for a while. Brad again. Although I guess I must have lost them somewhere or donated them to Goodwill or something like that. And then I won without them, so I, I didn't need those. Yep. Mango slices, talismans, lucky charms, or shoes, they only get you so far. Because once you step onto the Alex Trebek stage, it's just you, your reflexes, and your noggin. Which brings us back to that question of prep. We've done 
an entire episode on the many ways people prep for Jeopardy. It's a subject near and dear to my heart. And there are some tried and true methods. Brad swears by flashcards. I still do use three by five cards. I'm that old school. Or the slow and steady approach. I've gotten a lot of value out of reading books. Matea Roach again. I've been reading lately Palo Alto by Malcolm Harris, which is like a history basically of the Palo Alto region going back to gold rush days. And then the end of the book is talking about contemporary Silicon Valley stuff. And I think already there's been three or four things that have come up in this book that are responses to clues that were in Masters. Then there's the internet, where you can scour online forums, study betting strategies, and of course, spend lots and lots of time combing through the J Archive, an invaluable fan-built website that catalogs Jeopardy games. If you go to j-archive.com, what you will see is a splash screen with a logo and a couple of boxes where they have a the most recent final Jeopardy on the show. That's Robert Connect Schmidt, Jeopardy contestant, fan, and one of the founders of J Archive. If you click on the logo or one of the numbers in the season listing on the splash screen, it will take you into a big list of all of the episodes that we have in the archive going back to 1984. If you click on one of those episodes, it takes you to a Jeopardy game board. You can see all of the clues from that game, and there's also access to things like player information, stats, wagering calculators. The initial concept of an online Jeopardy archive started with former contestant and fan Ronnie O'Rourke in 2003. And then Robert Connect Schmidt took up the mantle a year later. What started as an act of preservation became a mind gym for Jeopardy hopefuls. Just page after page, clue after clue, kind of like the way Arnold Schwarzenegger described doing reps to build up his muscles. You just think of them as each each one of them just a, a, a little soldier in an army. And, you know, soldier after soldier, you, you sort of build instead of a muscle memory, a brain memory for all the things that Jeopardy might ask for. If you go to J Archive, you can scroll through decades of Jeopardy boards, checking out clues and maybe picking up some patterns. In fact, there's a trick of the trade that J Archive helps with when it comes to preparing to go on Jeopardy, something called Pavlov's. In general, a Pavlov is one or two words in a clue that will lead you almost certainly to a correct response. Would you mind if I... That's Robert pulling out his phone and going through old Jeopardy clues on the site he created. Polish composer. That's going to be Chopin every time. I mean, Hungarian composer, Liszt, Finnish composer, Sibelius, post-war plan. That's going to be the Marshall plan. There are entire subreddits dedicated to Pavlov's. Nonsense poet. That's going to be Edward Lear. Norwegian artist, Munch. Welsh poet, Dylan Thomas. These sorts of clues are ones that you have to sort of commit to memory, almost like if you're studying chemistry, you have to know the the chemical formulae and the reactions. If you get the Pavlovs and a few other things, you're more than halfway there to being a Jeopardy champion. Of course, future champs should be a bit cautious. The writers know about the Pavlovs chatter, and they might take that into account the next time they write a clue about a Welsh poet. But there are other resources to test your esoteric trivia knowledge in the digital age, like Learned League and Sporkle. And of course, there's always the tried and true pub quiz. 
but some even take the step of trying to recreate the experience of being on stage. Here's James Holzhauer, 2023 Masters champ, who holds the title for highest single game winnings. So I tried my best to kind of simulate the studio conditions at home. I would turn the thermostat down. It's really cold on that stage. I'd turn all the lights up. I'd uh, get a little clicky pen or something in my hand to, to simulate trying to click in at the right time. So do all Jeopardy! champions take strategy to this extreme degree? Find out after the break. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. If you're one of the contestants rolling up to stage 10 day after day, your skills and your stamina are being tested. When you get to this level of playing, how you approach gameplay matters, even if those approaches differ, which of course they do. If you think of the pros in any sport or creative field, professional endeavor, some are out there grinding, doing intensive reps, keeping to strict and extreme regimens, and others just have a natural affinity for the game. I do not come from the school of like intensive Jeopardy preparation. This is Matea. The way that I look at it is that as it stands, playing Jeopardy is not my job, right? I think there are people who take a really workmanlike approach to playing Jeopardy and they treat it like their job. And they are able to do that without losing their sort of joy and inspiration for playing the game. And I have huge admiration for those people. Their minds are on a level that like I can't even comprehend because that's just like, I can't do that. Um, So I have to approach studying and acquiring more knowledge in a way that works for me. Some prep can be done by making flashcards or identifying material that you might not necessarily be drawn to. But what Matea is talking about is the type of prep you do that might not even look like prep in the traditional way, following your interests and absorbing information around you. That's the kind of prep that shows up in a Jeopardy category, the information that's gleaned by pure curiosity and exposure. There was a horror movies category in Masters, and the $2,000 clue was about Eyes Without a Face, which is like a French movie from the 60s. All right, horror movies, 2000. This Georges Franju classic about plastic surgery inspired a Billy Idol song and an Almodovar film. Matea. What's Eyes Without a Face? Yeah, good job. And I only knew it because gifts of it were really popular on Tumblr for some reason in like 2013 when I was in high school. There's no world in which me doing flashcards would have ever led to me knowing Eyes Without a Face was a movie. (laughs) 
Um, that's something that you like probably are only going to get through the more experiential or like in-depth learning of following your own interests. And I think it's beautiful that there are like things still in this higher level form of trivia that it's just incredibly unlikely that you learn by rote. Okay, so prep. Still choose your own adventure, but there's something all contestants have to practice. I think about this probably more than the average person and get very into the weeds. This is Matt Amodio talking about the buzzer. You're told that you should wait on the buzzer until the time is opened up. And then once time is opened up, don't press it once. Press it as many times as you can. Just hammer away at the buzzer. Because if you are accidentally a little bit too early, you're going to get locked out. And then it's whichever buzzer press is the closest after your brief lockout period has ended that will get you in. And so you want to press it in as as many times as you can. Every player is going to have something they dive into the weeds on. I mean, think about it. The people who want to go on Jeopardy and who are successful on Jeopardy are people who like to learn or really go deep on something. That can influence the way the game is played. And if there's one part of Jeopardy that's inspired incredible feats of focus and practice, it's the buzzer. We did an entire episode about it, but there is always more to say about that little piece of plastic. It's your sidekick, your victory torch, or the thorn in your streak. It just depends on how you look at it. For Matt, the buzzer opens up a window of incredible opportunity. You have about six seconds before you are ruled incorrect for not having answered in time. I decided that I would use that six seconds as best I could by ringing in, coming up with the answer in my head, and double-checking that okay, it was this person and not this person, right? And I would use that because maybe 95% of the time, the first thing that came to mind would be correct. But if I can get that extra 5% accuracy by just taking a beat, giving myself a chance to double check, then I was absolutely going to do that. Matt actually got a fair amount of flack from Jeopardy viewers for his habit of buzzing in and then pausing to give a few seconds before his answer. It was entertaining to see some of the very positive and very negative reactions to my style of play. Of course, my phrasing, my what's strategy was was a big part of that. She co-starred in Green Lantern with Ryan Reynolds before the pair married. Matt. Uh, what's... Lively? Like lively, yes. Select again, Matt. 600. In 2022, this rapper and Rihanna welcomed their first child together. Matt. What's ASAP Rocky? That's correct. I went about the approach of saying the fewer things to think about, the better. Uh, If you have a moving part, that moving part can go wrong. And so I found the simplest, uh, most repeatable uh, approach I could and went with it. And it worked. This is the one period on the show where you have control. You press that buzzer and you can do whatever you want for the next six seconds. You can do mental gymnastics. You could just breathe and relax for the first time since before the show started. You can use that time. And if you're not using that time wisely, I think you're playing a suboptimal game. Move over, Madonna. 
It's not four minutes to save the world. It's just six seconds. The buzzer is consistently cited as one of the hardest parts of playing Jeopardy. Ringing too early, you're penalized. Too late, you're toast. The timing, whether you go by lights, voice, or some combination of both, is the determining factor for a game. But then there's also the game material itself. One thing I sort of do, like starting out, is if there's a category I don't like, try to get it off the board early so that if there's like a daily double in it or whatever, there's less money at stake. This is Amy Schneider. You know, beyond that, you know, I I don't have as much of a strategy about gameplay. I'm trying to kind of develop more of one as I, as, as I, you know, move on and I'm playing better players now. But my, you know, I sort of call it my meta strategy, which is just to give myself as few things to think about, as few decisions to make as possible so that I can put my entire focus on the next clue and the next answer. I don't need to tell you this, but just in case, the categories on the Jeopardy board are laid out vertically with harder, higher-value clues at the bottom. The Jeopardy writers often design a category so that the clues feed off each other, which means that sometimes it can be easier to complete a category before moving on to the next. Not all players want to do that, though, and not all Jeopardy champions play the board linearly. The notion of moving around the board before completing a category started back in 1985 with a law student by the name of Chuck Forrest. This is Jeopardy! Now entering the studio are today's contestants, a law firm purchasing agent from Culver City, California, Renee Garcia, an advertising copywriter originally from Chevy Chase, Maryland, Claudia Wolf, and our returning champion, a student from Grand Blanc, Michigan, Chuck Forrest, whose cash winnings after three matches total $45,000. And now here is the host of Jeopardy, Alex Trevac. Before I went out and when I was playing at home with my friends in law school, one of them suggested this strategy, which is, you know, to jump around from one category to another without, uh, you know, uh, going from top to bottom and then moving on to the next one. Chuck's style of playing, jumping around from category to category, is now referred to as the forest bounce among contestants who have followed his example. For Chuck, it was a way to throw off his competitors. They don't know where you're going. They don't know what to expect. And that little advantage of maybe a second or less puts you in control. It's something which, psychologically, I think, gives the, the person who, who has control the advantage. The Forest Bounce hasn't always been well-received by fans. Some said it was disrupting the flow of the beloved game they knew so well. But it's inspired a range of players over the years, like Arthur Chu, and of course, the self-described game show villain, James Holzhauer, who also is known to hop around the board, but not to confuse his opponents, it's to hunt for those daily doubles. I will only change categories if I know the daily double can't be a certain place. Otherwise, I just tend to stick with what's there. James, a professional gambler, quickly made a name for himself in 2019 with his aggressive style of play. Big, big bets on those daily doubles. I was like just playing around with, oh, you know, what if I tried this strategy? What if I tried that strategy? And at some point I just like grew frustrated with the process and said, hey, what if I just go all in on every daily double? And, you know, I found that in, in my 
rudimentary simulation that worked really well. It turned out, <laughs> it, you know, if you get, get to a point where you are confident you can get the daily double, why not just press your advantage? This is what puts the jeopardy into jeopardy. The question of how to wager, how much to wager, the risk of trusting your own abilities and appropriately assessing those of your competitors. But if you're not literally a professional gambler, the wagering can feel pretty intimidating. In the syndicated show, when you're in a regular game, you know, whether you're a challenger or a returning champion, you're wagering real, like it is real money, I think, psychologically to a lot of players, right? This is Matea. And I think that that does affect people's willingness to make even decisions that they might know are optimal. Like I knew when I was coming down to play for the first time that it was usually good to make larger daily double wagers than you would expect. But I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I was like, well, if I lose this money, I just I don't know if I can like forgive myself and recover in the course of the game. Right. That's like the psychological element is a huge part of it. So I think pregame, it's like knowing what your comfort level is with making certain wagers. And I had to sort of work myself up to being more comfortable to wager, you know, like seven, eight thousand points, whatever, even when it wasn't real money because it just felt so unnatural to me. So that's big. Matea isn't the only one to shift strategies. Here's Brad Rutter. In the old days, if I saw something in a category I liked, I might bet, you know, uh, five, six thousand dollars. That seemed like a big uh, bet at the time. But in the finals of the All-Star Games uh, against Ken and Pam, I got the, the, the daily double with a pretty big lead in a category that I really liked, the, the American Revolution. So I figured out, you know, what can I bet uh, to wrap it up if I get it right or not be too far behind that I can't come back if I get it wrong. And that ended up being 10,000. And that's bigger than I ever would have bet back in the old days. I wouldn't even have thought of that. But playing against big names like Ken Jennings and Pam Mueller made Brad a more daring wagerer. And it paid off. Colonial 1600. Answer there. <laughs> the other daily double. Ten thousand. Okay. Here's the clue. The 1764 Sugar Act taxed molasses imports to help pay for this recently concluded war. What is the French and Indian War? You have just added to your score. And I got it right, and that basically, you know, Ken made a good run at it, trying to catch up at the end. But that basically ended the game right there. When I was first playing, I almost like looked at the board as like 60 opportunities to make a mistake. <laughs> um, and I don't really look at it that way anymore. Wagers can, of course, go awry. While the odds are generally high any given Jeopardy contestant will get a daily double correct, they do get them wrong, which is where another critical component comes in. Mindset. More on that after the break. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things. 
but not on everything. Right. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. I think, like, at some point I got the, like, Meditations of Marcus Aurelius or something like that. This is Amy Schneider, who first discovered Stoicism in college. I was so unhappy at that point of my life. And Stoicism was a way of saying, all of that can be true, and none of that has to make me miserable. Like, it is all entirely up to me to make the best of my situation. This was well before her first appearance on Jeopardy! in 2021. But that philosophy would stay with her and inform how she approached the quiz show. Because ultimately, when you're up there on stage, the prep, the strategy, all of that control you're trying to maintain, it all starts to fall away. And what's left is you. How you stay calm for the competition, how you ultimately let go, which is maybe the hardest thing to accept. There are so many things that are going to happen in this next, like, 30 minutes that I fundamentally can't control and have nothing to do with me. Matea again. I don't know what my categories are going to be. I don't know really how fast my opponents are going to be on the buzzer. And if you're playing in the regular syndicated season, you also don't know what their strengths and weaknesses are, what their strategies are going to be at all. You don't know how your buzzer timing is going to be compared to your opponents. And so what I'm thinking is, like, I need to focus exclusively on what I can control, which is basically just like, do I ring in or not? Anything else you just need to completely put out of your mind, any fear that you have about saying something silly, just like forget it. In the Tournament of Champions in the finals, one of the last two or three games, maybe the last game, it was down to the wire, me and Andrew in Double Jeopardy, the, the daily doubles were gone and it was just like the last six or seven clues that were all the like low dollar amounts but it was going to come down to those clues which one of us was in the lead going into final. Serrano and other chilies help flavor and name this cheese. Amy. What is Pepper Jack? Yes. Hegel, eight. Much of Hegel's work reacts to this older German philosopher, though his son Emmanuel was named for someone else. Amy. Who is Kant? Right. Hegel, four. The key world event of Hegel. What I remember is not being stressed about it. What I remember is not like getting worked up and keyed up about it. Or, or even, like, even really changing my approach at all. Just, like, being there, being in the moment, trying to get the buzzer, and, and you know, I would either, either win or, or I wouldn't. All of that prep, strategy, buzzer practice, studying, 
It's all about putting you in the right mindset, putting you at ease, and hopefully giving you a sense of peace. You've done what you can, and now all you can do is play and see what happens. I think that the thing that makes a Jeopardy player able to go from somebody who's like smart and good at trivia to someone who really succeeds on the show has like very little to do with their actual gameplay strategy and has much more to do with where they're at mentally and psychologically when they go to play the game. People go on and they are known for being really strong trivia players. Like they did really high level quiz bowl in high school and university, or they do these like recreational competitions as adults where they perform incredibly well and they spend a ton of time on it. And then they show up and they just like, it's not even necessarily that they don't do well, but they underperform relative to like how you would expect someone who spends that much time thinking about these things would do. Ask elite athletes, really pros in any respective field, and most will tell you that what it all boils down to is mindset. And I think that the difference is going in, being okay with any outcome, and being very aware of what is within your power to act upon in the game. So is that how to make sense of the recent spate of super champions in the last few years? Our elite players raised themselves to a level um, that is otherworldly. It's like pros playing amateurs sometimes on our game, even when our amateurs are brilliant themselves. They behave like athletes. They have a consistency, a calmness under pressure, a bounce back ability, a way that they prepare mentally for this game that takes it to a new level. This is Jeopardy! executive producer Michael Davies. Jeopardy! has some elements of chance in it, but it's mainly a game of skill, which is why I think of it as a sport. Jeopardy! as a sport. This is Michael's dogma, what he gets fired up about day in and day out. The thing that I found remarkable when I took the job is that when I was watching super champions, ultra champions like Madame Odio or Amy Schneider or Matteo Roach, is that we would take all of our best players who've been on the show, these amazing champions we'd put on the show all year, and we would bring them back for the TOC, which was inconsistent historically on the show. It sometimes happened, it sometimes didn't. But we would essentially throw out everybody who played on Jeopardy, and we would start the next season with all new players. And I think part of my thing is, in any sport, they would never do that. We would never in the NBA wipe out the rosters of every NBA franchise and say, okay, LeBron, you were great in your rookie year, but now next year we're going to have somebody else or, you know, just wipe out everybody on an NFL franchise. For some, Michael has hit the nail on the head and they are ready for the sportification of Jeopardy. I think the reason we're second to the NFL on television is because we rate like a sport and we rate like a sport because we are a sport, because people watch us in, in that kind of a way. I think there's a step to go, which is probably to go live at some point as opposed to on tape. Um, that terrifies uh, my people, so I'm probably alone in that. But I think certainly Jeopardy! Masters, getting that developed and sold to ABC, that's a very big step for the show. But for others, Jeopardy! will always be a place where anyone can step on stage and for 30 minutes prove that they're capable of just about anything testing the capacity of their curiosities, indulging in the joy and the thrill of America's favorite quiz show. Next time on This is Jeopardy! 
when my phone blows up from like my people, that's when I know we hit, you know, a, a bullseye in the culture. Black Jeopardy was just strong. It's just chock full of jokes. This is Jeopardy! The Story of America's Favorite Quiz Show is a production of Sony Music Entertainment and Sony Pictures TV. It's hosted by me, Buzzy Cohen. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The series producers are Julia Doyle, Rob Dozier, Sylvie Lubau, and Mia Warren. Associate producer is Serena Chow. Our series editor is Sarah Kramer. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Sarah Kramer, Michael Davies, and Suzanne Preddy. Production management help from Susanya Davenport and Tamika Balance-Kalosny. Our theme music was composed by Hannes Brown. Our engineer is Cedric Wilson. Special thanks to Charlie Yetter and Steve Ackerman. Shout out to Alexa Machia. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>